live from the Empire of Lies and having technical problems. I'm going to say Rod has put together a great show for us today, an all-Moscow show. And in the first hour, we have the great Robert Briggs joining us from Moscow. In the second hour, we have a pre-taped interview we did with Mark Sabota about the Putin speech this morning. Although this morning was middle of the night for us here in America. And that's what's on the backstory. Yeah, Lee, I'm hearing from Command Central that we are on, so we are being uh, heard. So, uh, you know, we can, we can keep uh, talking like uh, we're going, all, going through the air regularly. Well, I can hear you. So let me, I think, say the name of the show again, because we only did one boom. Right. So uh, the name of the show is The Backstory. That's right. So we got that going, and that's nice. How are you doing today, Rod? I'm doing well, Lee. Uh, can't complain, really. Um, but, you know, obviously, like you were saying, there was big news that happened late night for us and early morning in Russia. Now, I was up and I listened. I talked to Mark about this in the pre-taped interview. I listened to British media and immediately I could tell they were lying because of the things they were saying. For instance, they called Putin paranoid. OK, that's fine. Now, I don't speak Russian, so maybe. He sounds paranoid in Russian. Does that make sense? Like, I'm, I'm open to the possibility, maybe. But then they said the reason he sounded paranoid is because he was saying the West is out to get Russia. Now, I would say if someone's out to get you, you're not paranoid if you know it's out to get you. You see what I'm getting at, Rod? Right. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree with you, Lee. I was listening and I was getting the notifications on my phone, and it's it's just so stupid that it's it's hard to even like comprehend as anybody who's uh, informed, even if you're just slightly informed. Um, they just keep repeating the same stuff, you know. Like you said, uh, Putin's paranoid. Uh, the the claim that uh, um, that the West is trying to attack Russia. I mean, these aren't claims. There's a mountain of evidence uh, bigger than Mount Everest. Right. Also, they talked to. I knew they were going to make a big deal about the nuclear thing because apparently Liz Truss, we played the tape, Liz Truss can practically drool over the possibility of being able to push the button down. Dr. Strangelovette, she can do, you heard her say that, right, Rod, that she she's ready, willing, and able to push a button, right? Yeah, yeah, Lee. Uh, we did play that clip, and I was seeing yesterday when we were waiting for the uh, the press conference from Putin. You know, they were showing clips of Liz Trust on uh, Sky News, and she talks about how she's already she's ready to be unpopular. So, you know, obviously, if you're talking about nuclear war, that is going to get you up from the gate. That's going to get you very unpopular. And her being ready to be unpopular, she'll love this show. She's been unpopular here for months. Now, the other thing. You remember this guy, Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, the Republican? Remember, he months ago was talking about using nukes against Russia. Remember that? Yeah, I, yeah, I remember that, Lee. And uh, that's another crazy guy. I don't know why he's so hook, line, and sinker with with uh, this whole Russia narrative from the American side. And he's also from a country that I understand 
is the only one to have actually used nukes. America. Am I wrong on that? Yeah, I, yeah. I heard Command Central. I heard you. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And also, I also heard that Lee, um, we got Command Central. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's so frustrating, Lee. And, you know, I know you're um, not to call you old or anything, but you've been more involved with politics. But, you know, I'm in my 30s and just listening to these people repeat this stupidity and this suicidal talk of, you know, you know, using nuclear weapons like nobody's going to survive. Maybe, you know, they do have underground bunkers all over the country. And, you know, maybe these politicians think that they're, you know, they'll just wish us away and we're going to have a nuclear war and we'll be okay. I mean, what are they going to eat? Cockroaches? Well, some people, Klaus Schwab might like that because apparently eating bugs. Hey, you've seen that trend, right, right, Rod? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I've also seen it in the uh, some some grocery stores. They have the crickets, you know, those little, they have the uh, lemon and pepper <laughs> crickets and spicy crickets. So, yeah, that has not gotten to Sioux Falls, South Dakota yet. I got to say, my girlfriend is actually in the kitchen right now making biscuits, really good southern biscuits. You like biscuits, Rod? Oh, yeah, I like biscuits with uh, country gravy. And I was about to say, Lee, you know, you shouldn't have Danny cooking. That's sexist and misogynistic. So you already got strike one against you. That's part of why we like, I like announcing that she's cooking. Part of why I enjoy, because it's something that she likes doing. I bought her this white biscuit, this gravy, forgive me, flour. The way to make southern biscuits is you've got to get the butter integrated. So use a cheese grater. That's a hint. And also you have to use the right flour. And the right flour for some investigates is a flour called White Lily Brand. Have you heard of that, Ron? Oh uh, yeah, one of my cousins, she's a great cook and she bakes and she does all that stuff. So, you know, I've uh, we've had these discussions and yeah, uh, to make biscuits you gotta make them homemade and they they come out the best when you when you make them homemade. Right. Yeah. And White Lily brand, you know, it, it does sound a little racist. I'll admit that. Does, does it, you know, if if they called it Southern Purity brand, that would also sound, a little, you know, to modern ears, a little troubling. But I can't buy Aunt Jemima mix anymore. So, by the way, what did that accomplish? Banning Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, what did that accomplish for black Americans at all? Uh, it wasn't it wasn't for any black Americans, Lee. It was for the uh the white liberals to uh make themselves feel better. It was a uh it's tokenism. You know, they think that that is gonna do something for black people. It doesn't feed black people, it doesn't help them uh with any of the inflation going on or anything like that. But uh it, it does feed the ego of the of the uh white liberal. Yes, it's ins- it's insane, and, and that pure virtue signaling stuff is the kind of thing I think the Democrats are learning. A lot of people are getting sick of. And let's play a short clip. This is something I saw on TikTok, uh, on on Twitter, where a guy, this guy was paid to promote anti-maga messaging, and I thought it was very interesting. And he spoke about it. So let's play TikTok page for anti-MAGA. Hit it. 
Sources offered $400 to make an anti-Donald Trump propaganda post related to the January 6th investigation. That is completely not true. I should start out this video by saying I'm not a Donald Trump supporter, so that should give a little bit of context to where I'm coming from. I'm an attorney at Post Legal News and analysis on related topics. Okay, here we go with the story. So first thing first, I get an email from somebody with the Good Info Foundation. We'll talk about them a little more in a minute. I'm going to refer to this person as Jane. Jane sent me a message letting me know she represented the Good Info Foundation and that she was willing to offer a paid collaboration to discuss some topics related to January 6th. I said, sure, why not? I'll learn some more. Jane says the Good Info Foundation will give me $400 to make a post on my page and then share it to Instagram. So you see that blue link? All right, here, we're going to follow it. These are the specific requirements in order to obtain that $400 of how I should refer to the January 6th Capitol raid. Number one, I must call this a criminal conspiracy. Number two, I must say Trump Republicans were responsible. Number three, I must frame it as an attack on my country, an attack on America or Americans, a criminal conspiracy, and a committed crime. I must attribute the matter to MAGA Republicans. I must make clear that this was ongoing and unresolved, and most importantly, that I must channel all of this unto the manipulation of voter agency so that I could turn their anger around this event into defiance that would make people more likely to vote in midterms. And the thing that struck me the most was this part, where I was told to talk about the aspects of the Trump campaign's plan. I was supposed to say that the Trump campaign paid literally millions of dollars to make January 6th happen. So I figured, you know, maybe I missed something. So I said, hey, Jane, what is the basis for the claim that the Trump campaign itself paid millions of dollars to make the January 6th siege of the Capitol happen? Jane doesn't answer the question. Hi, Preston. If you don't want to state that in the video, it's fine. You don't have to use all the bullet points provided. So I kept going. Sure, I'm just wondering if there's support for that claim. Jane doesn't answer again. Let me know if you are interested and the rate works for you. Thanks so much. I'm not interested and the rate doesn't work for me. This is the Good Info Foundation. They boast on their homepage that good information is the lifeblood of a democracy. Now, I think what's interesting about that, Rod, I, you know, I sometimes say people, a lot of the conspiracy in media is laziness. It's not like there's a memo somewhere. But now there is a memo. Sometimes there is a memo. Does that make sense, Rod? Oh, yeah, for sure. Lee. Uh, if, if we go back to uh, a few years to Charlottesville, there was people uh, alleging that there was posters up and down. I forget the street. I've been to Charlottesville. There's a street, that, the main street with all these shops. And, I, you know, there's, there are a lot of posters over there. And I did see some on Twitter. I don't know how valid it was. But like you said, the media is lazy. They're not going to even investigate it. They'll say, no, 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 it's a, that's conspiracy theory. Now, even though that guy's on social media, on TikTok, and he was given very specific instructions, that list of instructions, I would say, applies to the mainstream media, too. It's almost like CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, so on and so on, have that same list. Because every time they talk about January 6th, those are the rules they follow. What do you think, Rod? Yeah, for sure, Lee. Um, you know, I've also seen on Craigslist these uh, these ads and stuff that like this guy's talking about. So, yeah, one hundred percent, Lee. And you know, uh, if you have some type of influence on social media, they'll definitely recruit you, especially if you're uh, you know all about the money. If you're all about the Benjamins and you don't have any ideology or any ethics, still, you know, they'll definitely recruit you into this. You know, just like Sean King. I mean, he's still out here stealing money 
uh, fundraising money for so-called causes for black people that never happened. And then what, but like I said, what struck me is how this applies to every mainstream media reporting on this. So we're talking about the the Putin speech this morning. I could tell that the memo is going to go out, scare people about Putin talking about nukes, even though the U.S. and Great Britain have talked about, we can talk about nukes, but if Putin talks about nukes, have a nightmare. That seems to be the principle here, right, Rod? Yeah, Lee, again, you know, just listening to the media, reading the media, listening to these people talk about Putin mentioned nukes and, you know, the attacks on Russia. And, and, and it's, you know, we just had Joe Biden at the U.N. Uh, early because, you know, it's better to have him out early because the later it gets, that's when he gets, you know, more drowsy and forgetful and loses his place. And he said, you know, talking about sovereignty. Well, you know, NATO has been encroaching on Russia's sovereignty for the last 20 years. Yes. And that's why now we got Robert Bridge coming up. And I'm going to talk to Robert more. Less about the speech itself, because Mark later in the show covers that very well. So if anyone thinks, why is he asking about not the speech? We'll do a brief summary from Robert, but we get into it more with Mark later in the show in a great interview that you're really going to like. But we have we have Robert online now. So let's take a short break. I'm glad I can hear Command Central again. We miss hearing you. Your lovely voice. Thanks for thanks for keeping us updated. We made it through whatever technical difficulty we're going through. Let's take a short break. And when we come back live from Moscow, Robert Bridge on the backstory. Backstory and on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. And joining us now from Moscow, Russia, the great author and writer, Robert Bridge. Hey, Robert, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Good. It's great to hear from you. So, we got an interview coming. It's an all Moscow show. We were lucky to have two Americans who currently live in Moscow. And if I say, now, remind me, how long have you lived in Moscow, Robert? Oh, my. It's uh, it's going on two decades now. Okay. That, that's, that's what I thought. Now, uh, can you remember when you first went over there to live? What's, I'm, I'm curious about this, because I'll talk to you about this Putin speech in a second. But we have Mark Zabala coming on the show, and I already videotape, forgive me, audio tape the interview. And so I know what he's going to say. So he talks a lot about the speech. And we'll talk about it a little bit. But I'm asking, first, I'm very curious, what struck you when you first got to Moscow and after living in America your entire life? What surprised you? Uh, uh, what surprised me? Uh, it was just like everything. Um it was like honestly stepping onto the surface of the moon. Uh, everything was completely, 
completely different. And uh, I mean, what was really striking was the fact that I was in Russia in the first place. You know, the the uh, the evil empire and all that, and um, that was that was just the idea of being in Russia was just incredible. But actually seeing it and seeing what it was like and seeing people. It was my first international trip abroad too. So that was also <laughs> really, um, wow. Yeah. It was doubled the culture shock. And, um, uh, what I remember is that everything was, it was like going back a hundred years in time. Everything was extremely, um, run down here. Um, and it was basically still being operated under the, the old Soviet system. Like, for example, if you would go into a grocery store to buy something, if you could even call it a grocery store, you'd go into a, what they call a producti, um, and you would go in and you, you weren't allowed to walk around the store by yourself. Everything was behind the counters and you would point to whatever you wanted. Well, I would point because I couldn't speak Russian. And the girl, the woman behind the counter would write down whatever you wanted and then you, she'd write, give you the slip of paper and then you would take it to a cashier pay for it. And then you go back with your receipt and give it to the woman and she would pack everything up and hand it to you. I mean, just stuff like that, you know, and, and as far as like restaurants and cafes, there was just nothing like, you know, it was just, everything was very Soviet. And, uh, but still at the same time, it had a charm about it, that it, even a lot of people today talk about it and they say that they miss that, that feeling that it had. And, uh, real, like, even though people didn't have much, there's still this like camaraderie, and a uh, feeling of togetherness between the people. And I really felt that. And I kind of miss that now that, you know, Moscow is a completely different place now. It's very modern. You know, back then, nobody beat their horns, for example, if there was a traffic jam. <laughs> Everybody was very calm and laid back. But now people are blaring their horns trying to get to the work. And, you know, it's it's a completely different place. So, yeah. And you walk around the grocery store, right? I've seen videos. The shopping experience is, is different now, correct? Yeah, I was just, yeah, just tonight, actually, I was at the, the mall at uh, Korsky Vogzal in the center of the city. And, uh, I mean, it's just as nice and as any mall that you would find in the West. And they're just everywhere, everywhere you go. And in uh, the city, they have shopping malls and things like that. And uh, so, yeah, it's a completely transformed place, for better or for worse. Now, so interesting, that, that fixing up, I'll call it, of Moscow, it, and I understand there were some advantages before, but how much of that has to do with Vladimir Putin? How much of making Moscow and Russia a very modern international city has to do with the influence of Putin? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, you know, I was here when Yeltsin was still in power, which is quite a long time ago. And, um, <laughs> So things really started, yes, things really started to change. I think things would have changed regardless of who, you know, who the president was um, for various reasons. But Putin, um, he, well, first of all, he gave Russians an image of themselves that Yeltsin, Yeltsin, for example, was the drunkard. You know, he was falling down and just making a fool of himself. And that kind of like that uh, created a, um, how do you say it? like a personification of Russia through Yeltsin and everybody like associated, which is actually kind of true because Russia was at the time a very drunken place. You could drink beer anywhere. You could smoke cigarettes anywhere. Um, I mean, it was just unbelievable uh, what it was like here. It was, it was just amazing. Um, and how it rebounded so fast. It's something, it's something that I still don't quite understand. 
but and then Putin came along and he was like the um the symbol of strength and virility and um uh you know not drinking and so that that kind of changed I noticed that the mentality of Russians changed at that time uh they they started thinking more about health and and I think a lot of that had to do of course with with Putin he he uh, exuded this this image of uh health and sports and doing all these things um so that's what really kicked off the changes. And then, like, for example, around the the, how, the the apartment buildings, before everything was run down, the playground, the, and that was one of the things that changed. First, they, they took out all the old uh, things and replaced it with uh, lifting equipment and things like that that people could do around the, the apartments. Then they banned alcohol in the trains. They banned smoking. And it just kept going and going and going from there. As far as the economy goes, you know, uh, Putin did have the good fortune of oil prices going through the roof. Um, he also brought the oligarchs under control, which helped to keep a lot of the money in Russia, because before that it was all just going out, and he brought all the oligarchs under control. So, that yeah, that was a big boost. Um, so, yeah, Putin has just been, uh, yeah, ever, ever since he's been in power, it's just been uh, an up an upwards trajectory as long as I've been here. So and I think that's one thing that bothers me is that a lot of people, there are a lot of Russians who don't like Putin. And I, I think it's from, some of them are from the younger generation. And I, 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 I just think to myself, if they could have seen what this place was like, you know, 20 years ago when I was here, I think they'd be singing a different tune right now about Putin because it's just completely different place. And a lot of the things that they have now, they, they really owe it to Putin for, and they don't understand that. And I also think in a weird way, this is my guess, it's just knowing human nature that part of the objection of young people is Putin has been in power, let's say you're you're in your 20s, basically your whole life, right? He's always been there. And therefore, it seems like it's boring. I want something new. He's my parents or grandparents generation. Do you think that you know, it's that desire for young people to want their own generation of leaders, I would say. It's human nature. Do you think that's true, Robert? Uh, yeah, that that could have something to do with it. Um, it's just the, what's going on now, for example, in Ukraine, you're always going to have people who are um, anti-war, no matter what. Okay, so right now, a lot of the a lot of the pressure that's coming down on him is, is because of the war or the special military operation, as they call it. Um, and uh, you're always going to have that. And for example, right now, a lot of the celebrities here, liberals, you know, kind of like you, same, same thing in the United States. Most of the celebrities are liberals. Most of the people in the news industry are liberals. So you get a lot of that uh, pressure coming from those, those particular groups. And actually just a couple of days ago, uh, a pop star here on a, Pagachova, you probably haven't heard of her, but she's a, a huge, I mean, she's just like a legend here, uh, kind of like their Elvis Presley, I guess you could say. And um, she came out against the war, and that was like, that was a big deal when she came out against it. So, yeah, a lot of it, uh, a lot of it is just coming from, you know, young kids. They uh, they don't understand. Nobody's really thinking this through, and, and why Russia is doing what they're doing. That they, they're basically forced into this position where they they had no choice. 
but to go to war. And um, so, uh, yeah, you get that that part of it, which is unavoidable, unfortunately. And Robert, I'm going to keep you up with news from America here. So I don't know if you would be aware of this, but here in America, Joe Biden does not represent a strength and virility. No one thinks that here. That's an update from America. There you go. Nobody thinks that either. <laughs> right. And they're right, too. But I think it's interesting that you talked about how Putin almost by policy and example increased huh. the health, increased the health of the nation. And because I think that's the way politicians have to do it. There's some policy stuff you can do. But if your leaders are drunk, people see that and they go, well, if it's okay for him, why shouldn't I do it? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I saw it firsthand here and how that, how his influence really rubbed off on the people. And he got people interested in sports again. And he's a hockey player. And uh, I mean, he did all kinds of things. He went hunting for a tiger in, in the, you know, Siberia and, and they just constantly showed, and he even laughed about it one time and said that a lot of it was just, um, he admitted it, that it was a lot of it was just photo ops, but there was a reason for it. And um, that reason was just to get Russians to start thinking about doing other things than just sitting around drinking vodka in the kitchen. So, uh, yeah, it worked. It really worked. I saw it firsthand. So, so in this country, and I'm not being facetious, you know this is true. In this country, when we have a huge problem with fentanyl and heroin, I don't think Hunter Biden as the first son is a great example. Would you say that that seems to be the case, Robert? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, that's a whole different story there. But, uh, yeah, that's just a disaster. And, uh, I mean, and like you said, you, you mentioned Biden, who's also uh, the guy can't even form a sentence. You know, so uh, I mean, the whole the whole Biden administration is just it's just a disaster and uh, a real disaster. Well, and yeah. and specifically, if Joe Biden could be a very very relatable and heroic person, if he'd helped his son kick the habit, if he'd been there for his son, a lot of people would relate to him. They wouldn't blame him necessarily for his son becoming a drug user and crack whore user. They wouldn't blame him for that. But Joe Biden, the thing about him is he strikes me as he's done nothing whatsoever to help his son. Does that make sense? Well, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes in the Biden family. I mean, I'm sure they probably tried to talk about it. I think right now they're probably trying to just keep it under wraps, not talk about it, make it seem like it's not an issue. But of course it is. Uh, I think my my question is how could how could a guy who's running the country, who we're letting run the country, raise such a child? I mean, what's wrong with him if if, if his child is like that? I think you look at Biden himself. How he's got a habit of sniffing children. <laughs> and, and yes, kids and well said. Something definitely definitely going wrong in that family. I mean, the whole the whole family is effed up. If you excuse my French, um, it's really disturbing to see his behavior and. Um, how how such a, a guy who I, and I personally believe is a pedophile, I'll just come out and say it, how how he actually got into power. And 
I mean, let's face it, the, the, the elections were rigged. He, he couldn't he couldn't bring 10 people to a, 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 a pancake house on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, it, it, the guy was just very unpopular. So, but that's a different story. Well, it's, it's part of the same story, though. I, I, I agree. It's a good point. And because it became what the, the bizarre part came, everyone in the run-up to the election saw that. They'd see these huge Trump rallies, enthusiastic, big crowds of people. Then they'd see Biden in his basement in Delaware or with 10 people. <laughs> and then the election happens, and it's almost like, well, ignore what you saw with your own eyes. And if you question it at all, now you're a traitor. If you question it at all. In fact, one of the headlines today is Congress is passing a law to make it harder for electors to question how they're supposed to vote. So our, our political system is changing, but it happened in front of people's eyes. I'll always say that. I'm, I'm not going to get into a big 9-11 thing, but anybody who saw what happened on 9-11 saw mm -hmm. with their own eyes that, in fact, there was something weird about the way those buildings fell. I had never seen, I'd seen buildings demolished before, and I'd seen controlled demolition, as I'm sure you had. I'd seen controlled demolition when they take down a building on purpose. And darn if it didn't look like a controlled demolition. So I can understand, based on the optics of that, I'm not saying it proves anything. Maybe sometimes buildings fall away naturally. But I had not seen a building fall naturally like that before. Usually they fell over. Does that make sense, Robert? Well, I, I've done a lot of research on 911, and I can say one thing, and I've, I've listened to a lot of uh, experts talk about those buildings, and there's one thing about steel frame buildings. They could burn for literally days and not collapse. Uh, so they're trying to tell us that the you know one of the, the strongest, sturdiest built steel frame buildings in the world collapsed after just an, uh, you know under two hours. It's it's just absurd, and they're they're just they're they're expecting people to just be idiots by believing it. And yeah, it's it was it was a complete inside job. So there's no doubt about that. Yeah, and I'm saying at least on the optics, you could start this discussion. You're not crazy if you say that. Also, when the Pentagon was struck, have you seen the footage of the missile striking the Pentagon? It's shocking. Have you seen it? Uh, what I have seen, they show they released. Well, all the all the cameras around the Pentagon were you know magically turned off that day. They didn't work. The only right. camera that was working caught, caught a glimpse of something, a flash of light that went into the building, and it took them a year before they finally agreed to release that video. And it's only a single video. I mean, there should be dozens and dozens and dozens of, of videos of plane of that plane strike. If a plane really did hit the building, which of course it didn't. So yeah, it was definitely well. And I remember. No, oh, you're right. I was making a joke. Actually, there's no footage of the plane hitting the Pentagon. There's no clear footage of that. And this is a pretty photographed building. I used to live by the Pentagon. It's out in the open. Yeah. It's right there. Dozens of cameras in that. I mean, it's and not only were there cameras, there were missiles around the building to protect it. I mean, no plane should have been able to get anywhere near that building. 
So it's just, uh, yeah, another thing to make you scratch your head. <laughs> so now, now let's talk about the speech. You talked about this pop star who's against the war, but Mark Zabota's take was that a lot of people, and he doesn't say 90%. He says he thinks it's going to get about 60 70% approval. Does that go with what you think, Robert? Most people will approve of it, but not 100%. It's a war, after all. Yeah. Robert? Yeah, definitely. I, I, would, I would agree with Mark on that. That, uh, yeah, you're going to get a lot of people like I just spoke with my wife tonight and she was on Instagram and, um, you know, Russians talk about things, of course, just like they do anywhere. And a lot of them are uh, afraid and some of them are talking about leaving now because they've uh, Putin announced this partial mobilization. And I was just I was trying I asked her, well, what makes them think things are going to get worse in Russia? Why do they think that they have to leave? And she couldn't give me an answer, and nor could any of those people she was talking to give her an answer. It's just, um, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Uh, but I think, I think, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would just have to agree. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. The, the Russians, the majority of Russians, will go along with this. And uh, I think you might have some protests. I know that they're going to call up three hundred thousand. Uh, I guess you heard that three hundred thousand um, reservists. Um. And she thinks, you know, the people who are upset, they're, they're well, what about these 300,000 people? I was, well, I said they're, they're military people. They're used to this. They have the military experience. They knew that that was part of the calling. You sign up for military duty, you could get called someday. So now they have a job, too. Some of them might be unemployed. A lot of them might be unemployed. And now they have work. <laughs> so I don't right. think you're probably able to accept this. And, of course, we have reservists in America. We have reservists who get called up, right? And sometimes. They're on with their lives. They may have a job. You know, that happens. Is, is that the equivalent, Robert? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just part of part of the uh, so-called work ethic. And you sign up for it. You know, that's always a possibility that you're going to be called up, sent overseas or wherever. Um, here, the Russians are just, you know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a tragic thing for Russians. So it's kind of like, I guess you could compare it to a civil war. Although the Ukrainians and Russians, they are very different now. Uh, even though they they are both Slavic and everything, they have a history that is very connected. They're very different people now. Um, so, but in a way... It's so the, the referendums are this weekend in Ukraine, and you're likely to have a lot of new Russian citizens. How do Russians feel about welcoming Ukraine to the family of citizens in Russia? You get any sense of that, Robert? Oh, they're they're one hundred percent supportive. You know, they've already done this with Crimea. Uh, you know, they're they're as long as you know, as long as the people are willing to to join the Russian Federation. It's not like Russia's holding a gun to the the people of Donbass and say you must join us. It's an actual democratic vote in Crimea, for example. Ninety eight percent, I believe, it was ninety eight percent of the people supported it the referendum to join Russia. So, you know, they're, they're letting the people vote. And if, if they vote and they agree, then the Russians are, they're going to be quite content with it. How could you, you know, how could anybody say no to that? That's uh, it's democracy in action. And uh, yeah, it's going to be, I guess, you know, kind of like what happened with Crimea it was um, Russia had to spend, I mean, billions and billions of, I don't know how many dollars to, uh, I mean, just building the bridge, from Russia mainland to Crimea, 
that was a huge, massive project. Um, they wanted to connect that to the mainland. And, um, you know, now in like, for example, in Ukraine and in the Donbass and Mariupol, for example, they had, there was just a huge fighting going on there. They're already starting to put up new apartment buildings for people. So yeah, it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, and I think if, I think if Russia was hurting financially and economically right now, which they're not surprisingly, even, even despite all these sanctions. And I think if the Russian people saw their government you know, having, for example, con- doing new construction in Crimea while back home people were suffering, then I think there would be some uh, problems with that. But that's not the case. Uh, Russians, they're really not, this is as shocking as it may sound, they're really not feeling these sanctions at all. If anything, it, things, things here are getting even better. Uh, oil prices are going up. And uh, so all that trickles back into, the, you know, of course, people... I was, you know, walking around, the sh- as I said, I was walking around the shopping mall today, and I guess 10% of the, the stores um, are out of, you know, they're closed up because of the, what you know, they, they, they're making their stand and they, they don't want to do business here or whatever. But uh, it just hasn't, it hasn't rippled through the economy at all, as far as I can tell. I mean, I, I haven't noticed anything different here. Except for a few, and McDonald's, even McDonald's is, is working again under a different name, though. Um, Coca Cola, they're still here except under a different name. So <laughs> it's just, it's funny, you know. And then you hear the people, the, the countries that have slapped the sanctions against Russia in Europe, I mean, they're, they're talking about freezing through the winter now. And uh, now these people have to load up on firewood. And so it's just. And did you follow what's going on with the SEO? The Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Did you follow that at all, Robert? Um, I mean, I knew that they just had a meeting in Uzbekistan, and I think Iran joined. But I, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't really followed that as much as I should have. Well, I think that it's a big story because it shows the future of an economic alliance with countries like Iran and China and India. And those are two very big countries and very big economies, and economies with a lot of strengths in the tech sector, hardware in China, and software in India. And that, you know, Apple is still not in Russia. But I'm waiting for the Russian-made cell phone, and I think you'll see it in a few years. I'll I'll bet people are working on domestic Technology industry in Russia, right, Robert? Yes, I would. I would definitely agree with that. And and you've made a good point in that um, these sanctions they've actually caused Russians, forced Russians to become more self reliant. And uh, it's. I mean, I'll give you one one example. It might sound silly, but um, Russians really they don't really have any need now to import cheese. Like for example, from France. I mean, you know, the good, the really good cheese, the Camembert, and all that stuff. Because now Russians are making it themselves. You know, that's just one example. And it was forced upon them by the sanctions. Uh, they couldn't get French cheese anymore. So they were forced to make make their own recipes and, and make it themselves. And, and they've done it. And it's, you can't tell the difference between the Russian and the French cheese now. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's just... No, I've heard that. I've heard that. And of course, I believe with bringing the Kherson region in as part of Russia, that's going to bring new possibilities because Kherson is known for great vegetables, right? Have you heard that? Which which area? 
the Kherson region of Ukraine. Ah, Kherson. Sure. And that's also where a lot of industry comes from. The, the industrial belt of of Ukraine was within the east. So that's, yeah, it's just uh, it, all around it's going to be huge advantage for Russia if it does succeed in, in uh, assimilating that territory. Yes. And as I think it's interesting, Putin, obviously, for what you said, has experience bringing a country out of a bad period into a good one. And I believe he's going to do that for Ukraine. Final question, Robert. Do you think I'm nuts for thinking that? That Putin might actually create a new renaissance for people in Ukraine? No, I don't. I don't think that's a that's a stretch. Uh, we we see it happening now in Crimea. Crimea now is the people that are, are very happy with the way things are going. I know some Americans who are living there, and um, uh, yeah, uh, if, if things go the same way that they have for Crimea, if they go the same way in the Donbas, and then that, that part of Ukraine, I think it's, you're right. It's going to be like a renaissance. It's going to be a rebirth of uh, that part of the country. It's been really uh, suffering for, for quite a long time under the, the current regime there in Kiev. But Putin seems like the kind of guy, unlike American politicians, who's not going to talk about it. He's not going to talk about all the fabulous stuff he's going to do. He's going to do it. Because it seems like on the health stuff you were talking about, he probably didn't talk about it a heck of a lot and make big promises. He just started acting differently. Does that make sense? And then I know you're going to go, it's late there, Robert. And I appreciate you staying up with us. But does that's, what I'm saying make any sense? Yeah, that's that's very true. That, uh, yeah, he's going to just, you're right. Russians, you know, you have this politis, uh, how do you say it? Politization, politis, politicization of, uh, of everything. You don't ask me to say I'm, I'm the wrong guy to pronounce things, but go ahead. Yeah, they want to politicize everything in the United States, and you know, and then it's got to go through fifteen different votes and debates before anything happens. But here in Russia, they they don't have that necessarily so much. Like if, if, if things things move, if, if if like for I'll give you one example. Like um, uh, I guess ten years ago, Putin passed the so-called anti anti-gay bill. Okay, and it was it, well, that's what the West called it anti-gay. But basically, what it was was just. Uh, it was a law that said that um, uh, nobody, no company or school, whatever, any institution could uh, direct uh, any sexual messages towards children, whether that be, uh, you know, homosexual or or whatever. Um, so, in that, if, if you can imagine how long that debate would last in the United States, here it was like overnight. You know, the Duma voted on it in a matter of hours, and it was passed. So, yeah, Russians tend. Uh, if they know that an idea is a good one, um, then it, it 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 flies through pretty quick. So I think things will be changing real fast there. Robert, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, but it is late in Moscow. It's nearly eleven there, right? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's um. Let me look at my watch here. No, it's going on midnight. Oh wow! Ten minutes before. Me. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. There we go. But Robert, great conversation. Take take care and have some cheese and think of me. Robert Bridge, great conversation on the backstory.
we're back in the backstory. And we want to thank Robert, Robert, Robert Bridge once again for his appearance from Moscow. And what did you think of that, Rod? Very interesting conversation, I thought. I thought the idea of Putin is the guy tell this stuff. I made some jokes about Biden about. But did you think that's an interesting point? Oh, no, for sure, Lee. Um, you know, Putin's a martial artist like myself. Uh, I've been a martial artist since I was young, since I was a young, young man. And um, I think it's very important that you uh, show some type of uh, health consciousness. And, you know, he's a, a judo master. I've seen people analyze his judo skills to, to make sure it's not all hype. You know, Robert admitted that he takes photo ops to uh, inspire people. But the, the judo, he's a, he's legit, not necessarily like he's, you know, he can compete in the Olympics or anything like that, but he's a very good in his judo. And um, so, yeah, and I think, you know, signifying his strength and something like martial arts. And obviously I think he's a, it's a part of the military. If I don't believe, if, I, if I'm not wrong, um, those things do uh, inspire some people in, uh, in Russia. And also I'm not opposed to politicians saying, look, we're doing this as a photo op because like when I go out and sit in my chair and Humble sign protesting Biden. That's a photo op. There's a reason I take photos, because in politics, putting out images that help your case is smart. What are the photo ops that Biden is putting out? I know. Let's get a satanic blood red scene from The Shining and do a speech in front of it about hating Republicans. That seems to be the thinking in the Biden administration, would you say so, Rod? Oh, yeah, for sure, Lee. You know, uh, I think these people are, like I said, I I believe these people are aware of the symbolism they put out there, and they understand that, you know, uh, people are going to see it that way, and and, and they want to anger us. They want us more divided. They want us more agitated. Um, So I definitely believe they knew what they were doing. Right. And I I think it's also, it, it had never occurred to me before that Putin is the right guy for Ukraine right now, because he's a builder. He is the one who is used to, as you, again, I agree with Robert, some of it's modern times, but some of it's a leader who restores vitality to a country. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course, definitely, definitely. And if Putin were Biden, what he'd be doing is talking about how he's going to forgive student loan and promote trans rights and everything else in the parts, you know, in Mariupol, because Mariupol needs to support its trans citizens. That's what he'd be doing. He'd be saying, by the way, my girlfriend pointed out something I thought was a good point. We've talked a number of times about these drag queen story hours, and you've seen some footage of that, right, Rod? Yeah, more more than I wanted to leave, but yeah. She was pointing out, she, you know, she's a girl, so she notices the kids. She knows the kids. Have you noticed the kids at these drag queen story hours often seem frightened and horrified? She pointed out that the kids often seem scared. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you do see it mixed in. Um, obviously, you have some parents or guardians who, uh, you know, try to get their kids uh, excited. But you do see people who are confused and like... And like uh, she's saying, you know, scared. Um, so, yeah, definitely. And uh, actually here in Westchester, which is um, about 45 minutes away from Philadelphia, Westchester, Pennsylvania, uh, there's a Westchester University there. 
they ha- they were having a uh, community, but you know it was C O M M and then Unity for you know the LGBTQ. They were having some type of events uh, planned for this weekend, but they had to shut it down because people in Westchester were started complaining and. They say there was threats, you know, I believe probably there was some idiots who did threaten the event, but, you know, they had to shut it down and they said, you know, uh, they had events for kids and it was, it was going to, you know, it was going to be great. And, you know, the kids were going to be all uh, united again, the, the community. And, but, you know, uh, you know, so people are fighting back uh, against this stuff. Because I didn't know clown was a gender because a lot of the people who do the drag queen story hours, they look most like not women not guys dressed as women they look most like frightening clowns you agree you know what i'm saying that kind of scary satanic clown that stephen king sometimes features in his stories well yeah these, you- yeah Lee, these, these are men dressed as women you know they have broad shoulders uh their cheekbones are different you know your, your facial structure is different than a woman so even if when you do makeup it comes off differently uh, you know, I mean, we're shaped like a V. Women kind of have a Coke bottle shape, so it just comes off, like you said, uh, you know, it's a little scary how they're dressed up. And they don't even know you do the makeup well. But see, I'd say it's a parody of women. You've seen the guy up in Canada with the huge, the milk porn guy. Have you seen, you know what I'm talking about when I say that, Rod? Yeah, with the... Exploding uh, milk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the... The large fake breast, right? Yes. It's a teacher at a school who's has not large. Large breasts are a okay by me. But frightening the large is this these are parodies of large breasts, right? It's based on something in Japanese porn called exploding milk porn. It's breasts the the the, the size of a full-grown dog, how how can I describe? They're not normal-sized breasts, right, Rod? No, Lee. They're, they're gigantic. I think this person probably going to end up with back pain. They're all the way down to his waist, and they're. I mean, you can't you can't even put a t-shirt on a regular t-shirt. That's how big they are. And if if you look up Exploding Milk Canada t-shirt, you should be able to find it, and the video will frighten you. And what's interesting is. You saw the schools protecting him, right? Yeah, yeah, Lee, here in North America, as far as the United States, and uh, I guess far, uh, as far as up to Canada now, that we've seen that these schools is where the, the, the breeding ground is and the protection racket for these sick individuals are. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, and I'm glad here in America people are joining school boards and fighting back as well. Now, I get a prediction, a, a premonition, I dare say, Rod. I have a premonition. Ready? I will predict your future. Ready? I'll bet Owl Killer has something to say about this. That's my prediction. Do you agree with me? I agree with you, Lee. I agree with you. And, uh, you know, uh, just to, I was picking up, piggyback off Owl Killer. You know, I had mentioned a couple months ago that uh, when the uh, the leak happened, that Sotomayor was a part of the Belizean Grove. And that's the, uh, the female version of the Bohemian, Bohemian Grove, you know, because obviously Bohemian Grove, they don't like women uh like that you know what i'm saying um so and they like peeing on trees at bohemian grove and elysian grove and i was you know i'm a guy so i was brought up and i peed on trees as did you you know you're a kid you're out in the woods you gotta go 
Rod, you know what you do, right? Right. You know, find I, out that out. works. You find, yeah, you find out my, or something. Until my first marriage, I had never seen how women pee on trees. Are you aware of that, Rod? Uh, drunk nights, yeah. Yeah, drunk nights, yes. I've, I've noticed that. So I wonder if the Elysium grow. I wonder if they do that. I wonder if they have their own form of owl. But we'll talk about more about that later and take your calls after this break on the backstory. Back on the backstory. We want to thank Robert Bridge once again for being a guest in the first hour of the backstory. Let me say backstory again so we get to the first boom. This is the backstory. I'm still a little screwed up with technical problem before, so my intros aren't as smooth as I would like them on today's show. But coming up, we got a great interview with Mark Sobota, all about that speech by Putin that happened this morning. In, in Moscow, in the middle of the night here in the U.S. And we had Mark Sabota's reaction a couple of hours after the speech. You won't miss that coming up on the backstory. Now, proving the existence of psychic phenomena. Did we predict it, Rod? We said it would happen, and sure enough, it did. It's a cosmic connection, Lee. Right. We have at 202-521-1320, on the line right now, coincidentally, Owl Killer. Owl Killer, go. So you want to talk about that freak from Canada? That is yes. giving you the It, it, it is giving us the war in Ukraine. That is the spirit of what allows leaders to behave the way they do and put us in a situation. So. I actually, I actually think now, whatever happened a couple weeks ago in Ukraine, no, only only Russia and Ukraine know, and some intelligence people know. It's bigger than anybody has any idea. And remember, I told you when this war started, something's not right because Putin did not use the air force like you normally would, just carpet bombing everything and then send your uh, your infantry in. The man and holding. He's been holding back. Well, well, let me back you up one sec, because I want to emphasize your word freak. Like, like I say, I'm a red bull American male, and I like big boobs, and I cannot lie. But this is not that. This guy is not a guy who's, who's had a breast job, right? It, this is freaky. It's weird. It's disturbing. Owl killer, are you with me? What type of person you dress like that in front of kids? They're cle- they're not doing anything. It's not like they're doing anything for him. They're prosthetic. So all the whole thing is for the optic. And who is he trying the the reaction from? It's from students. Tucker hit the nail on the head last night. He's a sexual pervert, and he is getting something sexual out of. Dressing like that in front of in front of teenagers, there, because there's no benefit to what he's doing. Could do anything. It's, he's not at a drag show. He's not around other adults. 
that he can't feel anything. They're fake. So what is he? What are they doing for him? It's the reaction. It's the attention. It's the energy he's getting from the children, and that is the essence of these demented people that take you no know, that take showers with their daughters. That is the type. That is the people we're dealing with, and that's why they defend them. And I think it's also offensive to gay people. I'm up here in Sioux Falls. And it's a very conservative place, naturally. But I'll say this. I have more gay friends in Sioux Falls than I had in D.C. And no one gay I know up here in Sioux Falls would be in favor of what that guy is doing in school. No one. And to be told that he's representative of the LGBT community is an insult to everyone who's gay and just likes dudes if they're a dude or whatever. And you you see what I'm saying, Al Al Killer? Lee, who has cared about someone's sexuality after twelfth grade? Does anybody care? Right. Right. Who cares? It's it's boring. It's a boring subject. Okay. People may have gotten made fun of in, you know, middle school. Nobody cares. So and that is why it's offensive to gay people because they're like, Look, we're we're accepted. Nobody bothers us. You that that's what that's what I that's what I think the left does not understand. Behavior like this is going to get a reaction you're not gonna like. And when I tell you that, you know, say some type of because the 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 atmosphere is right, and I don't want this to happen, but the atmosphere is right for whoever if there is some type of world war or economic collapse, somebody is going to come in, whether it's on the right or on the left, and say they're gonna put things back together the way they were. It happens historically. It happened with Napoleon. It happened with Hitler. Every time there's a collapse in the degeneracy in society, and they're going to go after who they blamed for the, for the breakdown of society. And that's going to go. And there will be no gay marriage. And there will definitely be no abortion. It, like, say some right-wing uh, dictator did take over. And all that stuff that people have tolerated it will go out the window and that's why i think gay people are offended by it because they see that they are you know they they're normal they function in society now i think i i think you're valid to bring up the concerns of a backlash i don't think though and i really want you to i really want to ask you al killer do you really think that could happen i don't see any way i don't think they would be supported by enough people I think people would reject that. If, if someone were up there and said, I want to get rid of gay marriage, a lot of people, a lot of people would get, get this is not about gay marriage. It's about this guy with enormous prosthetic breasts. It's not about that. that. Do you think reasonably they, uh, I, I don't think this is maybe, maybe in the past, but I don't think that kind of thing, that kind of backlash will happen. What do you think, Al Cohen? I, I, I really think. Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm being on. I wouldn't think that a virus with a sub 1% uh, kill rate could shut down a world for two years either. So I, I think people are, I think right now we do not have very many thinkers. We're in the minority. Okay. We may be a 20, 30 person percent minority but the majority of people will go 
with whatever makes their life normal and comfortable. And whenever the cognitive dissonance kicks in and they can rationalize what's going on, they will move their acceptance meter to meet whatever society is. Majority of people are not leaders and they just want to go along to get along. No, that's true. But I don't think they will go along and get along that far. I think that is the normal they want to go back to, which is only like 10 years ago. They want, don't want to go back to 80 years ago because that doesn't seem normal anymore. So I agree with you that people, I think the, the normal that people will go back to is not as far back as you're suggesting, Al Keller. Look at the riots during, during the, uh, in uh, 2020. If, if the media is normalizing it, the audience will buy it. Okay, so that didn't surprise me. Are you talking about the Black Lives Matter riots? Yes, and that—that's what I'm saying. The nothing's about nothing's about that surprising to me because I've said over and over the history, the recent history, the '60s and '70s history of the Black Panther Party has been lied about and covered up by the media. The media is covered for, for the Black Panthers, and actually, what they're doing, burning down cities. That doesn't surprise me. But how many, what, what, I don't think the majority of people agreed with it, but they, the media normal, oh, it's okay, this is accessible, oh, uh, you know, it's not our business, we're not going to, that's what will happen. But that's what I, that's the, that's what I, I would say a significant, a significant amount, and I get to go to Reef in a second here, but a significant amount I actually agree with it. And when the media has been covering up things like, Beat Whitey Night, and you know all about that. Bet a number of state fairs around the country had what is unofficially called Beat Whitey Night, where gangs, crowds of black people, young black people, go through and intentionally punch and assault white people, and they're they're very clear they're doing it to assault white people. Are you aware of that, Al Killer? Um, it, I'm aware of that. I'm aware of the knockout game and you know, all the attacks. And you know, I don't let that impact because that's what they want. They want it to impact your. They want white people to, uh, you know, stop. You know, stop associating with black people and start blaming black people. They want that type of retali- retaliation. And I, I'm I'm glad that it, it hasn't been retaliated against. But yeah, of course, I'm aware of all that. Yeah, and it's very frightening. So, Al Killer, great call. Thanks for calling in. i got to move on for time reasons because I've got a heart out at the bottom of the half hour. So, Tarif, you're on. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, first, I'd like to say free June and Um you know, She came out today, earlier today, and say something. He wanted his military to be ready for war. You know, that's serious. Um, winter is coming early this year in the west in the uh, excuse me in the northern hemisphere. From what I understand, Poland is already northern 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 Poland is already experiencing some snow already. Um it's gonna be the coldest winter since nineteen forty five and it's not gonna be anything nice, especially with Russia cutting off the gas. You got um Ukraine might the last power station might get knocked out, which 
you're selling power to Ukraine and also to the rest of Europe at a um, premium price. And you got on top of that, like I said last week and the week before, you got the Saudi Arabian talking about cutting 100,000. Well, well, let me stop you one sec. I want to talk about the cold winter. Yesterday here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, it was 94 degrees, you know, in into the end of September, 94 degrees in Sioux Falls. But my girlfriend and I were talking about it. She was complaining about it. She doesn't like hot weather. And uh, she didn't like it at all. But I told her, meteorologists say that Sioux Falls is also expecting a colder than normal winter. And today, sure enough, the high temperature is like 59. So we had a 40-degree drop overnight in the high temperature. So I believe that about the Northern Hemisphere. And God has a way of laughing at you when you make your plans. So Europe, your plan was to destroy the Russian economy. Ha, ha, ha. That's God laugh. It did not work. And in fact, you issued the sanctions that stopped Russian energy from coming to your countries. France and Germany and other countries are now facing an energy shortage in the coldest winter. And we'll see what happens. But do you agree that this is exactly the wrong winter for the sanctions to go into effect, Tarif? Well, yes, it is. And uh, uh, the more I look at it, it seems like the Russians <laughs> probably knew this was going to happen, and they planned it this year for for them to have the kind of offensive. And it was stupid for Ukraine to to work with the MI6 and CIA to have their attacks on the Donbass region to try and wipe off the bass this year, knowing that it was going to be cool. So they didn't really look at everything. Now they're going to be faced with 300,000 more troops that's going to be inside Ukraine destroying Ukrainian uh, infrastructure and military equipment. So, yeah, Ukraine going to suffer more so now. And Sharif, thanks for the call. I'm going to move on only because of the timing issues. But, so, Command Central, let's do this. Let's go to a short break now and come back, and that way we'll get a break out of the way. And then I'll be able to go, go to the interview with Mark with no problems. And we'll take Brave on the other side of the break. So let's take a break on the backstory. Backstory and coming up this hour is a great interview of Mark Slobodo talking about the Putin speech this morning announcing the partial mobilization of troops in Russia and the future of the Ukraine conflict. You won't want to miss that in about eight minutes. It starts, but now let's also mention that we're on the radio on 105.5 FM and AM 1390, and now joining us on the phone lines at 202. 521-1320 is a great Brave from Atlanta. Hey, Brave, how are you doing? How's it going, Lee? I don't, I don't know if I'm that great, uh, but thank you. Um, I was, uh, I was... No, you're, you're, you're great. You're, you're always 
astute political commentator. You're very fair to both sides, even though I, I know you, like everyone, you have your opinion. And I also think you're a very interesting and creative individual because of the art that you do. Hey, I'm not going to turn that Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, no, I, I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. I, I was listening to the... Um cross talk this morning um first uh, there's a pretty pretty great interview with um professor richard wolf on uh on fault lines uh, prior to that and he brought us some of the same issues that i guess that, that, that cross over into the cross talk conversation I'm about, I'm about to bring up um there were a couple guests i can't remember the gentleman's name so i'm doing him a disservice but they were discussing um of course um the war in ukraine and how um the e how, how the eu um and how, well, how, 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 say, say how Europe as well, well, let's just say the West, how the West has dedicated itself to uh, basically um, destroying themselves in order to fight this war against Ukraine. Um, but two points that were brought up that I want to kind of get your uh, opinion on, and uh, hopefully, I, I'm pretty sure our killer is still listening, right? I know he called in a little while, and I would love to hear his take next time he calls in. Um, first point that was raised was that, um, that the intentions were obviously to destroy the economy, but to destroy the uh destroyed currency not 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 um not russia's currency but um the the uh the american dollar right as as well as what i would what i would guess is um the different currencies there in europe because uh, um um yeah and, and so i'm, I'm sorry I'm rambling a little bit. it's almost like i forgive me brave but do you agree it's almost like they're doing what could be called a great reset Yes, yes. <laughs> and <laughs> obviously, yeah, right? This is what I'm getting to. But yeah, he was making the point that they are helping on destroying the uh, the, the dollar and the euro. Um, and then he went further in, in stating that um, because they are in so much debt, um, obviously in the U.S., we, 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 we get that, right? Um, but Europe as well, the EU as well, they are in so much debt that the only way they could, they could um, get above it or, or save themselves from it is to totally destroy their current their um currencies, right? So that I guess devalues the debt or something like that. So I just want to get your your thought on that. Well, I think that they have some problems that they know. For instance, the debt that we have to China. You you know you reach this point sometimes where you're in so much where things get so bad you just give up because you go. Have you ever done that where you're like, let's say the dishes have, as a gross example, but have the dishes ever piled up where you're like, I need to throw these out and buy new dishes. That's the only thing I can do because I'm not going to clean these. They've been in the sink three weeks. So the amount of debt we have to China is so much. It's trillions of dollars. Here's a hint. The U.S. is never going to pay back that debt. Agreed? Yeah, I agree with you there. There's so much debt that they're going to buy new dishes. What they'll do is the equivalent of that. So what I think is, but they they can't do it publicly, because if they say, you know what? We've gotten too much debt. We're never going to pay it back, because that would cause a freakout. They have to have an excuse to do the same thing. So I think they're taking advantage of a crisis. Now, the question is, did they cause the crisis on purpose? And to some extent, 
I think they did cause the crisis on purpose. Not that there wasn't something initially, but yeah. that they hyped it up so much that they made it a worse crisis. What say you, Brave? No, I have to agree with you there. I, I think they definitely caused the crisis. Um, and each case, even going back to uh, even going back to COVID, um, Lumina Full had on all day. But I, I, the only the only thing I take issue with, not in your point, but the, the idea, because I do believe they are working intensively to, to um, destroy to destroy and devalue the dollar and the euro. Of course, right. The only thing that I um, take issue with, I guess, concerns me on on completely committing to that thought is that here in the U.S., as far as I know, um, debt is the goal. That's the idea. Like, you know, you, you, they don't want you to pay off the debt. They want to keep you in debt. So maybe it's, maybe, that's, maybe that's different as far as the consumer goes than the actual government, maybe. Maybe that's where I'm, maybe that's where disconnect is in my logic. But as far as I know, uh, when it comes to the U.S., our model is debt. Like, that's, that's, that's where everybody's winning at, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll talk about this because I've talked about how I'm looking at an apartment downtown Sioux Falls. I was turned down this morning. I have some credit issues after the divorce. Uh, our car was repoed, but I didn't have the car. So my wife had the car and she got the car repoed. But because we're married, it's still affecting my credit. Does that make sense? So I'm thinking about this, and I have to improve my credit score. And I'm but a person, you know, there's ways to do that. But I've never been that interested because I've had the mistaken thought that what credit allows you to do is to get a credit card. And I don't want a, I don't want a credit card. Does that make sense? Whatever financial problems I have after divorce, one I do not have is my wife and I did not rack up $40,000 in credit card debt. We had no credit cards, so we have almost credit card, no credit card debt. And I used to think the purpose of building your credit is so you get more credit. But now I'm saying that I have to rebuild my credit because you can't function in the world. I, again, I have a great apartment now, so at worst, I'm stuck here for another six months. Credit is so fundamental to everybody's day-to-day life, whether you want to be or not. Does it make any sense or just make me sound, sound pathetic? I'll brave. Uh, no, it makes perfect sense. And um, I, I've been there before, so I totally understand it. Talking divorce and all the things that go along with it. Yeah, but yeah, no, your, your point makes perfect sense. Yeah, and I think a lot of people underestimate how important credit is because I did think, well, the purpose of it is to apply for a, a credit card, and I don't want to apply for a credit card. Does that make sense? My rationalization. Yeah, definitely. I mean, but the, but you like but, said, the way things are said now, like you said um, earlier, like you have to have credit for everything to, to participate. Like, and and I guess it's going. We're, um, we're they're going to step that up once more with this whole um, stakeholder capitalism uh, model, right? Where uh, you know your, your social score matters. Right? Have you have you sent good tweets and things like that? But it's all a part of the machine. If you don't have credit, you're not like I have an uncle who's a mechanic, and he always kept cash. He never ever did the whole credit thing. He didn't use his credit until he was like in his fifties, I think, and he had stellar credit. He had never used it. Um, well, I feel that. 
again, 57 years old, I'm working on getting one of those secured credit cards to build credit because I only miss my credit score is only off by 25 points. So it could be worse, but I think I can rebuild that credit in a few months and then go apply again. Does that make sense? So I'm not crying over it, but it it did seem apropos to mention. Thanks for the call, Brave. Always appreciate the call. Thanks, Brave, from Atlanta. Now, coming up is a great interview I did with Mark Sabata. Listen to this interview. You'll learn a lot of stuff that the Western media in the U.K. and the U.S. is lying to you and hiding from you about Putin's speech this morning about partial mobilization. So, hit it. And we're joined right now in what is the middle of the night here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. But it's what—it's not even lunchtime there. It's almost lunchtime in Moscow, right, Mark? Um, it is it is getting close there. It is mid-morning. Yes. So the speech by Vladimir Putin, the, the long-awaited speech, uh, if long is a day, he, he was anticipating making this speech. He's made it, and you watch it. And now, our special correspondent, Mark Slavova from Moscow, what is your reaction to Vladimir Putin's speech? What did he say, and what do you think? Okay, Lee, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. Um, I, I would say that this has been long expected. And um, if you'll remember back to conversations we've had about uh, the Russian intervention in, in Ukraine since February and even before that, uh, this is long what I've said is necessary and probably should have been done in the first place. Um, I, I think uh, Russia initially limited their intervention force, what they called the special military operation, by their own legal self-limitations as a signal to the West, that uh, to NATO, that their intentions were limited and that they were always prepared to return to the negotiation table on the terms that they set out uh, and announced loudly and and uh, asked for you know uh, security guarantees, asked for a resumption of the Minsk protocols, which was promised, uh, you know, and and abused for uh, more than five years and, and so forth, because they hoped to prevent an escalation of the conflict, and I think still. There is a danger that NATO or certain NATO countries, at least I'm looking at Poland and the United States, could at some point uh, after this decide to send troops directly, uh, say, into West Ukraine. That's a possibility. But uh, Putin's speech, um, it, it was long expected. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the measures he announced, I think, have been long expected, and there have been increasing calls for them uh, from Russian society, from uh, you know the Russian uh, experts, uh, analysts, political elite, uh, the other political parties in Russia uh, have been asking for this. The communists, the, the uh, Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, they, they've all, which isn't really liberal, democratic, or a party, but anyway. Um, <laughs> 
So, um, you know, they've uh, been calling for these measures for some time. And first of all, uh, I think uh, probably, uh, you know, uh, in bigger picture, the more important thing is that the four uh, regions of Ukraine, uh, meaning the two Donbass republics that have, Russia has already recognized their independence, uh, Lugansk and Donetsk, um, that have been being attacked by the West-backed putsch that seized power in Kiev back in 2014. They've been attacked by for eight years uh, by the West-backed regime there, um, as well as the areas in southern Ukraine that have been, uh, you know, liberated uh, from the regime forces since early in the conflict, Kherson and Zaporozhye, they will all, their authority, their own uh, leaderships, which is, you know, the political leadership of those areas, all right, they are, they are you know, uh, Eastern Ukrainians who have been politically repressed there since 2014, basically restored to power. Um, and they have uh, announced referendums on joining the Russian Federation, um, and uh, that would, uh, you know, be it would severely change the both the geopolitical and the military course of the conflict if all those referendums return positive results on that question, because then it would not be a matter of defending uh, certain areas of Ukraine from a uh, government, it would be a matter of defending the borders of the Russian Federation. Um, so that, that would be a significant change. Um, and in uh, support of that, uh, and, you know, the course of the conflict in general, we talked and I identified the main problem is the self-limitation on the size of the force. And sure enough, they announced a part the Russian defense minister announced a partial mobilization. And he did exactly what I thought he would do. Um, and he is only calling up the reserves and he's only calling up a fraction of the reserves, uh, some uh, 300,000 reservists to be called up over a period of time, uh, particularly those with, with skills that are needed, like artillery men uh, and, and the like. Um, and that will be called up. They will be retrained. It will be some time. It will probably be two to three months uh, before any of them really re-enter the conflict. Uh, but most of these will be used to uh, guarantee in those areas of, um, uh, you know, the former, what would then be the former Ukraine, uh, so that the uh, the contract professional military uh, can continue with what they're doing uh, in the Donbass and defending the hot borders like in Kherson. And if this had been done several months ago, Russia would, would not have had to prioritize and withdraw from Harkov. So there's that. Okay, now, I watched the British media cover the speech, and of course that's always tricky, because for one thing, they talk about his tone, and I, I have no way of telling tone. I don't speak Russian. But they called him paranoid, and even though I don't know the the language, I do know that they said he was paranoid because he said the West is trying to destroy Russia. And I know 
the West is trying to destroy Russia. Uh, they've, they've admitted as much. They've said exactly. that Russia needs to be defeated. Russia needs to be humiliated. They've used those exact terms, right? Uh, top Western think tanks have had meetings in Russia on the breaking up of Russia, what they referred to as the decolonization of Russia, held right in Washington, D.C. by top, you know, blob think tanks uh, and the like. So, I mean, the, you know, there, when the Russian president is pointing out that essentially they have been fighting, they, it, the conflict has morphed, and what was at least partially a Kiev regime military, that has, for the most part, been destroyed at this point, and they are now fighting a NATO proxy force, a military force that has been openly armed, trained, salaried, gets intelligence from, gets battlefield direction from, gets their 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 uh, strategies war-gamed and handed to them from, from NATO. I mean, that, that, that's what it is. And that's why uh, that uh, this mobilization, uh, you know, of, of partial mobilization of reserves uh, uh, and the measures they're, they're going to uh, with, you know, uh, bringing these regions of Ukraine under their, you know, formal protection as part of Russia is necessary. And it's, it's not paranoia. It's a simple recognition of facts, no matter how much the West wants to at one point say they'll do anything uh, for to protect the regime in Kiev and that Russia must be defeated. And then, and then when Russia reacts to that, suddenly it's paranoid. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it's and, so as someone who's, who speaks and understands Russian, how was the tone? How would you oh. describe Putin's, you know, tone? It was, it was, for the most part, it was his standard. Uh, Putin is um, very much in control, but also um, uh, a bureaucrat, right? Um, yes. He, he, he is very technical. So for the most part, he spoke in very exacting, calm, <laughs> uh, technical terms uh, about what she was, was doing. And there were a few moments when he spoke of the attacks, uh, you know, the shelling attacks on the civilians of Donetsk and the like, that he allowed a little bit of passion to enter his voice. But, you know, that was uh, itself, you know, still under control there was there was no hint of panic or desperation when when western commentators are making statements like that i think that it is far more a projection and it says far more about their real emotional state than it does about the russian presidents yeah, no good point now how do you think this is gonna obviously you haven't pulled everybody but overall how do you think this is gonna go over with with the citizens or Moscow and the rest of Russia. How do you think the Russians are going to react to this? Okay, well, first of all, let me say how the, the you know the I think the people in uh, the soon to be former East Ukraine uh, think about this, yes. and and I do have some because I have family in the former East Ukraine, so uh, they've been waiting for this for eight years. 
right? Uh, they, they, this is what they wanted from the beginning when the government they had elected was violently and unconstitutionally overthrown in Kiev. And then, then, uh, you know, uh, these, uh, Banderite, uh, fascist battalions were sent to subjugate them. This is what they have wanted for eight years, particularly in the Donbass republics. Um, in the two southern republics, um, uh, Zaporozhye and Kherson, who are also having referendums. And it has to be said that Putin didn't actually mention those in his speech. He specifically mentioned the Donbass republics, but he, he didn't really talk about Kherson and Zaporozhye. Uh, but they have also announced that they will be having referendums and their leadership spoke that they don't want to be left in some gray zone. Um, and, um, you know, all of the other comments seem uh, to be that they will be accepted as well. Now, uh, in the Donbass republics, I expect the approval to be, you know, like it was in Crimea after eight years of the Kiev regime shelling and terrorizing them with petal mines uh, and, and uh, drone attacks and the like to be well over 90 percent. They want nothing to do with the, with with a Ukraine that is controlled by that regime in Kiev anymore. And they want protection and, they, and you know, they want proper legal status and, and they want economic security and the like. Uh, in the Southern Republics, I expect uh, a, a broad approval, but there will still be a percentage, a, a higher percentage of the population, uh, you know, 20 percent uh, to 30 percent, maybe uh, that uh, is not in favor of it. Right. Because. Uh, Again, as you move further west, right, the Donbass and the Crimea are solidly pro-Russian. And most of East Ukraine, the majority is pro-Russian or Russian sympathetic or at least not a big fan of the regime that seized power in Kiev. But that does lessen. And, and it would be you know irresponsible to say that everyone is behind it. I, I think a majority will will vote behind it. Uh, but I don't expect it to be, you know, in the high 90s. I expect it to be in the, you know, the mid 60s, 70s, uh, you know, maybe a uh, a bit more, a bit less. Uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, the uh, minority that is, say, pro, uh, uh, you know, the Maidan regime that sees power in Kiev have, have actually already left the territory. Whereas uh, a lot of people from the other parts of Ukraine that wanted to live in Russia have entered that territory and and, and taken up residence there. Uh, so you know, there there is kind of a, an exchange of peoples in the in the midst of the war going on. There's constantly convoys of cars i even cnn has reported this of people trying to get into russian controlled territory from other parts of of ukraine uh so how will the people in uh russia now there will be i think uh, a, a more voiced opposition from the liberals that are left in the country uh, a lot of them left already uh back in february Right. There were there was, uh, you know, uh, if in, a, in a country of one hundred and and forty five, hundred forty eight million people, uh, about one hundred thousand people, I would say, left the country at that point uh, because they're they are the pro-Western liberal 
contingent. Uh, that is one of the big reasons why we haven't seen, you know, a, a return to uh, opposition protests is because a lot of those people simply left. I think we'll see a little bit more political opposition within the country, but it will be an extreme minority. And from everything I've heard, a lot of people have been saying, finally, you know, uh, you know that that Russia is starting, or the Russian government has said. And it has certainly been shown that this is an existential war against the West at this point, that that NATO is waging on Russia with with Ukraine as as a proxy. And it's time for the government to start taking it seriously. And there have been increasing, very vocal calls for uh, the Russian government, for Putin to do exactly what he is doing now. Um, since, uh, you know, the, um, withdrawal, uh, under, you know, being outmaneuvered, uh, and outnumbered from Kharkov, um, uh, you know, just over, uh, you know, close to two weeks ago, a little, little over a week ago. So I, I think that there is broad support for exactly this. I know the opposition, uh, uh, parties in Russia, the Communist Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, et cetera, they've, they, they have all been calling for this very loudly, uh, since then. So, um, I think Russia, the Russian president is finally, uh, responding, uh, to a lot of voices, uh, from the Russian society, from the political elite, from the military, from the commentariat, uh, that he's doing what needs to be done. It, it's belated, but better late than never. Now, Mark, the the referendum starts in just a couple of days in the Donbass yep. and the other regions in Ukraine. It's it's scheduled to go for four, four days, and there is expected that there will be huge, desperate attacks by the regime in Kiev in an attempt to intimidate the people. They've already announced that anyone who participates will be imprisoned if they ever get their hands back on them. Anyone who votes in it, anyone who organized it, uh, that, uh, that they are collaborators, that they are traitors, and you know the best that they can hope for is a prison sentence. And they will attack with whatever forces they can possibly throw um, during the next uh, you know week, because the referendum is going to be held over four days as so that everyone can participate. And also they are, are basically going to also be going door to door uh, to collect votes from people because they don't want large numbers of people uh, to gather in one place so they can be subject to e either uh, terrorist uh, saboteur uh, uh, attacks, bombings, or shelling, uh, which is something that, that the Kiev regime has done. They just bombed the residential, uh, the, the marketplace uh, in Donetsk uh, just yesterday, uh, resulting in the deaths of some 16 people, including till children. And this is par for the course. I mean, this has been happening every week uh, or more frequently for the last eight years. And uh, they certainly will try desperately to, to interfere, to intimidate people uh, until this is over, and of course, they will never accept the results. So, and so, how important do you think this speech was by Putin coming before the referendum? And how do you think the referendum? Because we didn't, I didn't ask you this yesterday. How do you think the referendum's going to turn out? I, I, I think it's obviously going to be a win, but how big a win? Something like with Crimea in 2014, or what do you think? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I think we just talked about that a few minutes ago. I expect that the Donbass republics uh, will definitely will see results like that uh, uh, in the in the 90s uh, in support. I expect that the results in Kherson and Zaporozhye will be somewhat less. Uh, you know, again, the, the, this as you move further west, but that a majority will still be in favor of it. I expect results, say, in the mid sixties, low seventies, but it could be higher. And and did the speech increase those numbers or? Yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't think Putin's speech will have a direct impact on the the people in the Ukraines or soon to be former Ukraine's uh, opinion. I mean, they, they one way or another, they are already clearly set. We I saw uh, there was plenty of videos. Again, they won't show them on Western media because it doesn't fit the narrative they're trying to peddle. But there were big rallies uh, yesterday in Kherson, in Zaporozhye of people, you know, packing uh, auditoriums, stadiums, uh, calling for what they are referring there now to as a return home, meaning that for the majority of the history of those regions, they have been associated with Russia in one form or another, whether that was the Soviet Union or the Romanov Empire before that. Uh, and, and, and for them, that is the way that they are talking about it uh, in, uh, you know, East and South Ukraine right now. Now, so you, you said that this speech was long expected, really, but yes. did anything surprise you in the speech now that has been given? Um, he, he spoke that right now that the status of the special military operation would not change, that they're still referring to it as a special oper- uh, military operation, but obviously the terms of that are changing. All right. The the partial mobilization says that right now. And I also think that the targeting uh, of selected infrastructure uh, in Ukraine uh, uh, over the last, uh, I guess, about 10 days um, where Russia attacked some electrical stations uh, and two dams to uh, flood the Ingulitz River in the south uh, to stymie the uh, the Kiev regime counteroffensive uh, in Kherson, uh, where they erected pontoon bridges uh, to cross the Angulitz River, uh, making that impossible now uh, and creating a very bad situation for what forces they had there. I mean, they had already been halted quite firmly, uh, but now they're just being what they had there can't retreat, can't be resupplied, can't be reinforced and is being cut to ribbons. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that uh, I think that the special military operation terms are definitely changing. The fact that the Russian government isn't choosing at this moment to officially say, I mean, they they specific Putin has specifically said that the status of the special military operation will be remain. They will still call it a special military operation after the referendums happen and the results are are factored in and the reserves are called up. Maybe that will change. Maybe it won't be called a special military operation anymore. Once the Kiev regime then continues attacks on people who have who have declared their will and been accepted to join the Russian Federation. Uh, But for right now, I, I think that was kind of a surprise, but maybe I shouldn't have been that surprised by it. But again, whether it's still called a special military operation or not, the terms are certainly changing.
Now, after the speech by Putin, Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, spoke, and one thing that he said, he gave a definite number on the number of killed in action. He said 5,900, so yeah. just under 6,000. Did that number, do you believe that number to be accurate? Okay, so uh, first of all, he when he gave that number, I'm almost certain that he's specifically talking about Russian soldiers. He is not talking about the uh, Donbass militias, right, which will be brought, by the way, into officially into the Russian military, um, if uh, assuming that uh, they return a positive results on, on the, the referendum and they choose to join Russia. Um, so we I, I've spoken before again on this that for the last few months they have done a majority of the heavy ground to ground fighting that has been done that Russian forces have been doing the, the artillery the aviation the electronic warfare the you know the special ops and everything uh, but a lot of the actual fighting the heaviest fighting the storming of the fortifications that that needed to be done after the ar artillery softening has been done by the Donbas militias and they have probably suffered higher casualties so when you factor in the Russian casualty, you know, KIA, plus the Donbass casualties, uh, I think the total number would be a bit closer to probably fifteen to 20,000. Uh, again, assuming that, that they have probably suffered higher casualties. Um, and th that is kind of, shall we say, the, the, the I will lie by obfuscation or, or by omission, rather, uh, that he's not mentioning because... Uh, again, in this conflict, there are Ukrainians on both sides of this conflict, uh, Ukrainians supporting the regime, Ukrainians conscripted by the regime, and Ukrainians, particularly in the East, fighting against the regime. Um, and a lot of them on both sides have done the dying, however sad that is. It's, it is very much uh, a war right now, whatever it may be called, for the soul of Ukraine as, as well as its politics and geopolitics. So the, the media reports saying, and again, I, I not, don't speak Russian, but that Putin said, this is not a bluff. Did he say that? And do, th is, do you think there's any possibility it's a bluff? Or is Putin dead serious? And is that a change in tone from what he said previously? Yeah, I, I, he was very serious when he said it, uh, but he's very serious when he says everything. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that anyone seriously thinks this is a bluff. There's nothing to be bluffed about here. It is literally being done. Um, and, um, I mean, uh, Putin knows that the ex results of these referendums will not be accepted in the West, and he doesn't really care. I mean, uh, to be fair, that, you know, all through the uh, the whole Cold War period, the West never accepted that the Baltics were part of the Soviet Union, but that didn't change the facts of the matter either. Russia doesn't accept that Kosovo isn't part of Serbia, but can't actually change the results in the middle of Europe either, since NATO uh, bombed and invaded Serbia and uh, uh, carved Kosovo off of it. Uh, you know, so that's that's nothing new. Um, the U.S. doesn't uh, recognize or Russia doesn't recognize um, the uh, U.S. military occupation and proxy authorities set up in East Syria. But 
they're not going in and forced to remove them either. Not not yet, anyway. Um, so you know, uh, obviously, we're going to have ge- geopolitical disagreements on who we recognize and who we don't recognize. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter to the people of Zaporozhye or Kherson or Donetsk or Lugansk that Joe Biden doesn't recognize, uh, uh, you know, if they choose to be part of Russia, because the reality is they will be, whatever Joe Biden thinks about it. Right. So overall, it's safe to say, I think, Mark, that you were you were happy about this speech, right? Yeah, I I been calling for this for eight years so i i I, and and again i have family in east ukraine who have long wanted this and actually been very angry with and almost given hope uh given up hope on the kremlin uh on you know uh, on putin uh over this but you know uh, as they say better late than never and uh i i i think that this is what is necessary to be done uh not only for russia and russia's national security, uh, but also for the people of East Ukraine. So final question for you, because I know this is going to come up. Because Putin mentioned nuclear weapons, the West, the media is already starting to lie about it and saying that the West has never talked about, I've heard the West talk about nukes, and they're saying the West never does that, but Putin does. So in what context did Putin bring up nuclear Putin weapons? Putin is only bringing up the context if NATO attacks Russia, right? right? It's saying that we, if there is a a overwhelming conventional invasion of Russia by NATO, which something which I don't even think they're capable of, to be perfectly honest, uh, or if there is a nuclear attack on Russia, Russia will respond with overwhelming uh, and, you know, certainly in light of its hypersonic missiles, superior uh, nuclear response. Now, to talk about the Russian use of nukes or attack nukes in Ukraine, that's ridiculous. That is a Western disinformation talking point that they love to talk about to present some type of desperate or demonized image of Russia. That is not a possibility. No one is considering that it would be far more likely to see the U.S. use tactical nukes uh, uh, in Ukraine against Russian forces. And if they did, that would then, of course, incur a Russian response. We have to remember that there's only one country in the world that has used nuclear weapons uh, as part of a war, and they use them, of course, on civilian populations, and that is the U.S. in Japan against the citizens of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, So, Mark, as usual, it's great to talk to you. Great analysis. Thanks for clearing up a lot of lies. And uh, you usually I tell you to get to bed, but because it's early, it's like 11 o'clock there. Don't get to bed, Mark. Yeah, I'll, I'll get back to feeding my zoo. Okay, Mark, have a good day. Thanks very much. Cheers. Mark Savara. And that was the great Mark Savara with us on The Backstory. And a great interview. And I appreciate Mark talking to me in the middle of the night. I want to get his immediate reaction. And once again, let me ask you, the listeners, to do something I hardly ever ask you to do. Share and like us on all platforms you're listening to us on. It makes a big difference. And today, especially, 
was a great show because of our community of callers. We had so many good calls. Owl Killer, Brave, Tarif. We had so many good calls. And we're so blessed to have great audience for the show. And we try to give you perspective you won't hear anywhere else. A wider perspective that is respectful of the left and the right, but does not flinch from telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So few shows are going to bring you the other thing. Rod, are you there by any chance? Okay, we don't have Rod on now. It's okay. The thing that struck me is the nuance that Rubber Bridge and Mark Sabota, Americans living in Moscow, now Moscovites, they're free to criticize Putin. And you heard that. You heard criticism of Putin on Russian-sponsored radio by American-born people living in Russia. So please tell people about the show because we bring you something unique and I think special. Until tomorrow, I'm Lee Stranahan. This is The Backstory. Backstory.